what's our topic today? It's a random topic. Random. Random. Topic. Random talk topics. Yes. You will be interrogated tomorrow. Interrogated. Yes. Get ready. <laughs> all right. All, all set. Yeah, we try. So we do it in parts. Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, so, uh, so this uh, uh, interview uh, we're going to do in two parts. Uh, one is to know about uh, Iskorn's, uh, you know, uh, beliefs and goodness, uh, which is related to the common person who is not a Iskorn member. And in the second part, we will get uh, Guru Vandana to ask uh, some questions to you. Yes. Uh, from the bhats, uh, who has some, you know, some queries and some, uh, you know, issues for the deeper part of Iskorn. Yes. So friends, uh, uh, welcome to PTU Melbourne. Uh, today we are going to talk about ISKCON, a very fast growing way of life, way of religion of the Hindu culture. ISKCON started in 1966 and it has spread worldwide nowadays. It has got more than 850 centers and with us is Swami Hedyanand Goswami Das Goswamiji. Uh, who is one of the pioneer and very top influential leader in ISKCON society. Welcome to PTV Melbourne, Acharya Dev. Thank you very much. Uh, you have come to Australia after a gap of around 32 years. After, oh, after 32 years, right. 32 years. Slight delay, yes. Yeah. So how do you find <laughs> the, uh, how do you find the change socially and religiously in Australia? Oh, I, I like Australia very much. Australia is a very beautiful country, many, many nice people. Almost all the people I meet actually are very nice, even just walking. I've been up to Queensland. Uh, I stayed actually in Corumban Beach and uh, we did programs in Surfers Paradise, uh, Brisbane, and then also in the large community we have outside Mrewillimba, also in Byron Bay actually, and uh, although I'm not a surfer. And um, then I came down to Sydney. We had many programs around the Sydney area and now Melbourne. So uh, yeah, I think Australia is, is a great country. Uh, so many facilities, so many nice devotees, so many nice people in general. So it's been a great trip. Wow. Uh, to our viewers, uh, would like to tell that uh, uh, Swami Hadirand Das Goswamiji is uh, one of the 11th, uh, one of the 11 group in uh, Susan by uh, Srila Prabhupada and uh, you have translated uh, uh, Srimad Bhagavatam uh, from Sanskrit to English. So uh, you know uh, so much things about ISKCON. Uh, any, uh, give us so much. Give us uh, a bit idea to a common person like me who is not a follower of ISKCON, uh, but always get impressed with the goodness and you know the, uh, the well-being of this society. So give us a bit about ISKCON. Right, sure. Yeah. Um, ISKCON is a society which, is, which offers a particular and I think most important service to society, which is self-realization and then ultimately God-realization. Uh, in the modern world, society is very complex and we take advantage of the services. Many people, doctors, well, lawyers sometimes, doctors, lawyers, dentists, uh, fitness trainers and uh, we go to school we have teachers so they're they're just you know electricians yeah. plumbers i mean there's just innumerable different 
vocations, innumerable different professional people that uh, help us in different ways. And uh, someone has to really help with self-realization because I hate to be the one to give this bad news, but we're all mortal. And uh, if we love life, if we love other souls and, and, and we love our own life, then we should try to arrange to extend it indefinitely. And, and that requires a spiritual technique. Wow. Uh, tell us one thing. Uh, you have more than 850 uh, centers uh, across worldwide. So how uh, difficult and challenging is it for uh, people like you and others, leaders, to keep the same uh, practice and beliefs uh, among uh, this widespread uh, world nowadays? You know, the world is so different. Uh, so many new things are coming. Uh, technology has changed the way of life, you know. So how do how do you uh, like you know uh, guide people, you know, but to 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 stay focused and follow the good you know uh, 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 good learning of uh, Iskon? Well, fortunately, Prabhupada, our founder, founder Acharya, emphasized um, individual responsibility and initiative. Prabhupada uh, resisted very strongly a highly centralized bureaucracy and so uh, as a result of uh, the way he set up the Hare Krishna movement uh, we have good strong leaders all around the world and uh, also Prabhupada he so strongly impressed all of us with his own purity his own authenticity and he presented the knowledge of Bhagavad Gita and Bhagavad Puran and uh, this great Vaishnava tradition, he presented it so powerfully that um, we haven't gone off the rails. So I think it's really uh, Prabhupada's credit because of the way he trained us, uh, both in terms of management culture and especially the, uh, the power of his teachings. That, and because it's, it's true, Krishna really is what he says he is in Bhagavad Gita. Wow. Uh, uh, one thing uh, which a common person I have noticed that, you know, uh, in the busy streets of uh, London or Melbourne or any other, you know, uh, in U.S., we've seen uh, Iskon Bhaks, you know, uh, going to the streets, dancing, chanting, Hare Rama, Hare Krishna. And people are this so exciting, you know, people join them, they dance with them. Uh, how does this, this concept uh, helps to spread Iskon? Is it a good way to market uh, ISKCON or is it something like, uh, uh, what's, what's, the, what, what's the way, be, what's the, uh, you, you know, uh, uh, intention about it? Yes. Um, our movement is called the Sankirtan movement. Sankirtan means together chanting, glorifying the Lord. As far as our specific presentation, uh, another great thing about ISKCON is that Prabhupada created a, an open free society. It's not cultish in, in the sense that, um, those who are faithfully following our basic principles are free to express in a, as ladies and gentlemen, with proper decorum, are free to express different views. So personally, I've started something called Krishna West. And uh, because I strongly believe based on my own studies of the history of religions and the sociology of religion and so on, and also having keenly observed the history of ISKCON, uh, personally I've observed it for almost half a century, that I'm convinced that uh, we should teach people to chant, for example, the Mahamantra, to glorify God, but our presentation doesn't need to be highly ethnic. 
that we can present ourselves uh, in a way which is more comfortable, more familiar to people in the West while still uh, doing it in, uh, I guess in the Gita's term, in a sattvic manner. So it's, it's decent, it's proper and so on. But at the same time, it's not strange or foreign or exotic because ultimately uh, I believe that, that to really establish ourselves more powerfully and really become a very much a mainstream important spiritual tradition in the West, we have to keep all of our basic principles, not compromise our teachings or our personal practice, but we have to be part of society and not stand far outside of it culturally. Okay, good. Uh, now, going back to your journey uh, on this, uh, you know, this moment, uh, uh, you have translated the Srimad Bhagavat uh, from Sanskrit to English. Uh, how did you, uh, you know, uh, get inspiration and how difficult uh, was it for you to learn Sanskrit and, you know, uh, translate it to uh, English? So give us a bit of uh, idea about that journey. Um, well, 1978, actually, I was in, I, I was in Brazil and uh, I was in charge of Latin America. And I realized there was a need for someone to step forward and help to finish Prabhupada's Bhagavatam. And uh, yeah, everyone can do something. And so I, Krishna kind of gave me the abil a certain ability of languages. And I always loved the Bhagavatam. And so I, yeah, somehow I was able to learn Sanskrit. I taught myself Sanskrit. Then I, I also got a doctorate in Sanskrit at Harvard. And, uh, but largely self-taught. And uh, I have a, a, a uh, colleague who's also a disciple of Prabhupada who has passed away several years ago. Gopi Pranadana, an American uh, Vaishnav who studied at Columbia, and he was very good at Sanskrit, so he rendered very valuable service to that project. I sort of organized a, uh, a team, and we were able to do it. Wow. Uh, tell us about uh, something about uh, your Food for Life program. I heard that uh, uh, you guys, uh, you know, uh, do such good thing to society. Uh, you also run hospitals. Uh, so, apart from the religious activity, uh, give us a bit idea about this. Well, uh, it all food for life is uh, distribu distributing food to needy people. Actually, began in West Bengal, oh, okay. in Mayapur, because Prabhupada saw some of the local people. You know, they had a terrible communist government for many years there, enabling West Bengal to become one of the poorest states, poorest states in India. Anyway, so they. Um, Prabhupada saw people, village people, scavenging for food. He saw they were actually hungry, going through the, the rubbish, trying to get food. And so it actually brought tears to his eyes. And he said that no one within so many miles of an ISKCON temple should ever be hungry. And so that launched Food for Life. And, uh, but it's not only material benefit, because Krishna explains in Bhagavad Gita that if you simply take this food, patram puspam palam toyam, and you offer it to Krishna, to God, in gratitude, because it comes from God, uh, then the recipients get uh, not only material benefit, but also spiritual benefit. So it's... Uh, yeah. So uh, talking about uh, Srimad Bhagavad Gita, uh, uh, Sri Krishna was, uh, you know, he was a mentor to Arjun, and uh, there was a war as well happened uh, between Kauravas and Pandavas. 
so uh, what does iskon say about uh, those kind of uh, you know uh, learning from the shrimad bhagwat when he says karam kiya ja phal ki icha mat kar means you keep doing your work don't uh, expect the result result will automatically come yes. so some of the you know the krishna krishna uh, you know uh, preaching to uh, arjun uh, how does it relate from iskon in a practical way like you know we all are nowadays a working professional we are all busy uh, we are a bit confused you know which religion we follow uh, how do we you know uh, program our day to day life and whatever small thing small time we get we, we try to go to the god you know two different ways so what do you say to the people like me you know uh, what's the right way you know how do i keep my focus and how do i keep my energy towards god uh, whatever you know belief i i follow yeah yes yeah. uh Krishna in Bhagavad Gita gives a very practical teaching. It's it's not sort of pie in the sky. And Arjun for example also had a full-time job. He was a prince. <laughs> He was not in the forest somewhere meditating. And so Krishna taught him karma yoga. In this sense karma means just what you do, your profession, your and um and uh, yoga means you offer to Krishna. So Krishna says uh whatever you do make that an offering to me so it doesn't for example you work in the uh film industry and so um whatever we do you why are you doing it of course in most of the time in this world people work because they have families and and so they go to work thinking that they're doing this for their family for their children or the wife or husband and so on but that those children or wife or husband ultimately they are children of god they are children of krishna and ultimately your power to work the energy to work the intelligence to work that's coming from krishna and so we should be grateful we should we ourselves are part of krishna ultimately in the entire universe there's only one family spiritually because krishna says in the gita pitahamasya jagato i'm the father of this universe mata and the mother dhata pitamah and so on and uh and arjuna said to krishna pitasi lokasya chara charasya you are the father of the of the universe so we are all families just as you work for your family out of love so ultimately we are all in krishna's family and so whatever we're doing we do it for krishna and that in, of course that includes our family yeah biological family very well said acharya ji uh do you think that today's it's difficult uh, it's a bit difficult for organization like is con to convince people to follow the religious path because uh, uh, especially the youngster are they have so much access nowadays access of technology so much access of uh, some of the beliefs which were have changed over the time like talking about marriage uh, in some places not many marriages are happening uh, but people are still living together uh, people are separating fast uh, how do you feel that the teaching that the the beliefs and teaching of iskon or other religions are very important nowadays to bring the world back to to towards that spiritual uh, state right yeah um people are uh taking a lot of liberties nowadays it's almost you could say a libertine society at the same time they're not happy i mean america it's just like sort of like you know pharmaceutical nation I mean if you look at the number of people I think Australia must be a health 
healthy or unhealthy number of people or taking pharmaceuticals. It's not that people are happy. There's certain laws, for example, you can eat junk food, but you won't feel good. Your body won't feel good. You'll get all kinds of diseases. And so, you know what they say, if everything else fails, read the instructions. And so Krishna is giving us a roadmap of how to live in this world so we can be happy and healthy, physically, emotionally, and, and ultimately spiritually. So as far as the young people, our experience is that when we present Krishna consciousness in a rational way, not as a religion, because ultimately it's not a religion, ultimately it is a spiritual science. And so just like, for example, if there's some new science in the medical field, no one cares where a medicine was invented or a procedure. If you are suffering from some medical issue and the doctor fortunately tells you we can fix this, who cares what country the medicine came from? And that's why it's so important that we not present Krishna consciousness as some ethnic thing. It's not. Krishna is giving a universal spiritual science for everyone. And if we understand it that way and present it that way, uh, then people will accept it because it works. So uh, I'm sure you know you have so much, so many bugs following, and uh, uh, bugs are living in all Western world and you know Eastern world. And now every day, every world is globalization. It's already globalized. Uh, you get uh, you know some of the issues like betting, you know, the drinking, or gambling, you know, horse racing. All these things are exciting to the young generation, as I said earlier. And somehow it's becoming a way of life for so many people. But actually, yeah. for example, I just saw the latest statistic. And among uh, teenagers in the United States, the level of, let's say, sex, you know, outside of marriage is actually decreasing. I don't know if that, whether that's because their brains are melted from social media or whether they're actually you know, having some kind of moral renewal. But the fact is that um, yeah, it's just decreasing. People, it's like, you know, the forbidden fruit is always attractive. So after so many centuries where sex and drugs was the forbidden fruit, and then finally, you know, society became materialistic and anyone could do anything. And so there's that, you know, that certain attraction. But once people actually experience these things, it's not satisfying. It's not satisfying. And, um, so, you know, those who are intelligent are yeah. beginning to understand this. Yeah, uh, I, I would like to, uh, you know, uh, make a point here. I think this is it's a bit of like a reverse uh, migration happening. So uh, what we are noticing is that in the West, people have seen all these things over the years. And now they have concluded, okay, this is not the right way. And they are transforming mm -hmm. themselves. So, for example, if you see, the more yogas are happening outside India, where it was originated. And whereas countries like uh, Eastern countries, India and China, where, you know, they were a very good uh, religious point of view at a certain time. Now they are getting a bit uh, like, you know, opening up and they're materialistic. So they're getting materialistic. Yeah. So, so it's a bit of like uh, 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 one way the world is improving. Yes. But on the other side, the world which was good is deteriorating. No, actually, it's all perfectly logical. It's like, for example, let's say there's a train with so many cars and the train goes around a curve. And so the front cars go around the curve. So when they pass, the front cars are going one direction. The back cars are going the opposite direction. But it's the same train. 
And so actually it's a historical process where people, I mean, the Greeks talked about this, where let's say you have a, you have a society where it has certain moral principles. And the reason those principles are there is because of long experience. People realize that we cannot be happy and healthy and even survive as a society unless we follow these principles. But over time, people forget why those rules are in place. And it just seems like needless uh, interference with people's lives and happiness, like it's none of your business, blah, blah, blah. And so then they throw away these rules and indulge themselves. And then they suffer and remember why they had the rules in the first place. And, and, and so, for example, uh, the battle cry of the American Revolution was no taxation without representation. And so if you think about it, uh, reproduction is not exclusively an individual act because when people reproduce, they bring a child into the world. And what social science shows is that if children are not brought up in a good family with a mother and father, they're much more likely uh, to commit suicide. They're much more likely to be poor to uh, have other mental problems, to engage in antisocial or self-destructive behavior. And so in other words, when children are not parented properly, and that means within a, a stable marriage, society pays a tax. Society pays for it. So it's a general ethical principle that whenever a group of people are significantly affected by behavior, they have a rational, justifiable interest to regulate that behavior. It's just like, for example, you may own some land and you may, let's say, have a little cottage industry on your land and you can say, this is my land, I can do what I want. But if your cottage industry is polluting the river that goes through other people's land, if you're polluting the air that other people have to breathe, you have to be regulated. And, and, and so this sort of exaggerated, irrational sense of individualism there has to be a balance between individual freedom and social responsibility. So in countries like India and China, uh, they're just going through the same process the West did just a little bit later, but they will also realize that it's frustrating and uh, makes life miserable and increases all kinds of bad things like uh, mental illness, crime, and so on. Very well said. Uh, now let's come back to ISKCON uh, thing. Um, What's the role of women in ISKCON? Uh, because if you see in other religions, uh, women are like, you know, taking leading role in, uh, you know, they are making uh, yes. big, big sense. So do you think that in coming years, uh, uh, ISKCON will also uh, get a bit of more transformation? You will see more and more, uh, you know, women coming into the top uh, uh, <laughs> as a groups and, you know, uh, spreading the... Uh, because... Uh, Everything needs a bit of transformation, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, I understand, yeah. Uh, first of all, um, I have been one of the uh, main leaders in ISKCON, one of the first, to very strongly advocate equal opportunity for women in ISKCON. And, um, yeah, so I'm absolutely committed to a woman's right to do any service for which she is qualified and inclined. And... Uh, as you may know, uh, well, um, I mean, West Bengal is a where our movement comes from is a conservative part of India, but they have the female 
chief minister. And so, yeah, absolutely, I, I think that it's simply not possible to uh, <clears throat> significantly progress for ISKCON in the West <clears throat> if there's anything at all like male chauvinism. And so um, the first teaching of Krishna and Bhagavad Gita is that we are not the body. We are eternal souls. And uh, so, of course, what social science shows is that on average, not always, but on average, men and women um, tend to make different choices in certain areas. They sort of have different inclinations on average. Now, it's interesting that on the right, the right wing, they're sort of infamous for being science deniers when it comes to climate change. Interestingly, on the left, they are equally, if not more, science deniers on gender issues. And so it's not a question of, you know, men are better or, or, or women are less. It has nothing to do with that. It's not about who's better. It's just about different inclinations on average, not always. But in any case, um, any woman has a right, according to Bhagavad Gita, to perform any service for which she's qualified. Krishna explains in Bhagavad Gita that our duty comes from our nature. And he also says uh, twice in the Bhagavad Gita, that it is dangerous not to perform the duty born of your nature, that don't try to do someone else's duty. And so if a woman is qualified and inclined, let's say to be a leader and some, and a man in the name of protecting the woman does not allow her to serve according to her real abilities, then he's actually putting her in danger because when people don't have the opportunity to fully express themselves, and serve Krishna according to their own abilities, then it's, they can't devote all of themselves to God. And so it's in the name of, and, and also in our tradition. If you look at the Gaudiya Vaishnava tradition, there were women gurus. I mean, of course there were, there were great women gurus. This goes back thousands of years before the Hare Krishna movement. For example, in the Upanishads, one of the oldest strata of, of Vedic literature, we find Gargi the sister of uh, Gargamuni, who taught kings. She was a great guru. So yes, uh, the whole point is that the real person is not the body, the real person is a soul, and therefore to become obsessed with someone's body is obviously hypocritical and inappropriate. So again, someone that's able, willing and able to do a particular service for Krishna uh, has the freedom to do it. Very well said. Uh, now, talking about uh, ISKCON, uh, uh, what, are the, what is the current situation across the world? Like, you know, uh, for example, it started in India and US. It's doing very well in India. Uh, around, across the globe, <coughs> which are the continents where you feel uh, it still need to develop? Like, for example, in uh, Africa, is it present in Africa or South America? Or so, how do you feel? Uh, you know what yeah, sure. situation, and yes. how what 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 are your you know uh, leadership as a you know thing to spread yes. more there? Yeah. Uh, start with Latin America because in 1974, Prabhupada asked me to take charge of Latin America, which I did for several years, and uh, movement's strong there. We have thousands and thousands of bhaktas, thousands and thousands of Vaishnavas all over Latin America, without exception. I and mean, there's not a single country in Latin America that doesn't have many Vaishnavas. 
And in some of the countries are, for example, there are thousands just in Brazil and in Mexico and then all over. Uh, in Africa, yeah, Hare Krishna is certainly sub-Saharan Africa. It's a little tricky in the Muslim-dominated North Africa for obvious but reasons. But I guess it's sufficient in uh, Nairobi. I see that. Oh, not only Nairobi. It's all over. It's all over Africa. Yeah. It's all over. And it's very strong in South Africa. Really, I mean, Kenya everywhere. Yeah. I mean, so the Hare Krishna is all over Africa. I would say more sub-Saharan Africa. Um. It's also, there are thousands and thousands of devotees in, in the former Soviet Union, all over the former Soviet Union. And uh, interestingly, I think that, um, and Australia is very strong. I think that we need to retool a little bit in the first world. And by the first world, I mean, of course, you know, the Western world, I mean, I mean, certainly, Europe, I mean, Western Europe and increasingly Eastern Europe also is sort of making their way toward the first world. And um, United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Japan also is obviously first world. China, actually the movement, I mean, there's a very large number of devotees in China, although there in order to uh, stay in the good graces of that government, uh, they obviously can't be very uh, extroverted but the Chinese are very attracted to Krishna consciousness. The first world has been a tougher nut to crack. And uh, although we have a lot of outstanding programs, you know, all over the, North America, Europe, and Australia, New Zealand, um, but we need to do a lot more. And, and I think when it comes to the first world, especially, uh, we really need to integrate in those areas where we can do so without compromising anything which is spiritually essential for us. And so external things like dress or, or, or let's say cuisine, musical styles, uh, those things, and the standard Krishna gives in the Gita, Krishna doesn't say in the Bhagavad Gita that offer me chutney and pakora, he says, offer me sattvic bhojan, you know, food in the mode of goodness. So th there is a criteria. I mean, you can't dress in any way for Krishna. You can't be indecent. But if you remain in the satragun, if you remain in this virtuous mode, so your dress is decent, clean, appropriate, and your food, obviously vegetarian, and so on. So if you remain in the sattvic uh, culture, then uh, we have to, I think in the first world, I think it's it's um, futile to think that we're going to culturally colonize the first world. Not going to happen. So don't hold your breath. What we need to do is not try to culturally colonize first world countries, but simply give them a spiritual science within their within these sattvika elements of their own culture. Uh, let's talk about uh, the advantage of uh, sattvic uh, food, like vegetarian. Yes. Uh, Many people don't find vegetarian food a good option because as per their understanding, it has some limitation in uh, a menu. Oh, really? Wait, wait, wait. wait. But those, those people are really, you know, in the Stone Ages. First of all, I mean, eating meat, especially red meat, is really health-wise. It's like smoking. You might as well chain smoke in terms of the health, health effects. So when we see people smoking, we, we pity them because they obviously people are 
are really unable to have a rational human life. And so, and so, I mean, meat causes cancer, period. Meat causes cancer. And so it's not healthy. It's, it involves the most horrible brutality. So, I mean, why not be a cannibal for that matter? Because someone that has spiritual vision, it's like saying, well, I mean, on what possible grounds can one justify horrible brutality, horrible cruelty to creatures who we know very well scientifically have a complex range of emotions, are definitely conscious. You know, it, it's this hypocritical, nonsensical legal policy where if you, let's say, if you kill someone's little pet dog, I mean, they'll hang you for it. But the point is a cow or a bull is equally conscious. And so we have to derive rights. Rights are intrinsic to a creature itself. Otherwise, you get to this barbarism like, you know, the decadent Roman emperors where if they put their thumb up, you live, thumb down, you die. Rights do not emanate from the whim of some leader. The right is intrinsic to the person himself. So you have certain rights as a citizen, not because some leader by his or her whim agrees to honor them, but the rights are within you. So, and, and how can you separate rights from the fact that a creature is conscious, has a complex range of emotions? And, 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 and so the, idea, the fact that it's still legal to brutally, cruelly murder, massacre, feeling creatures is just absolute barbarism. It's just like if you go back in previous ages, people didn't see what the problem was with slavery. They didn't see a problem. We now see it as an evil. And, and so first of all, on ethical grounds, uh, participating in this evil meat industry just means that someone really is lacking the most basic moral instincts. They really have a problem as a human being. Secondly, you could say if it, was necessary, it causes cancer. And it causes all, so why is someone engaged in wicked, cruel, murderous activity in order to give themselves cancer? This is so irrational, it's so absurd. And as far as saying vegetarian food is boring, people that say that, they're like, I don't know, at least like 30 years behind. As we know now, there's an infinity of delicious food choices for vegetarians and vegans. And so to say it's, it's not an interesting menu is just, again, it's just almost an, an, an incomprehensible degree of foolishness and irrationality. One more thing about the food uh, which we want to touch upon is that uh, nowadays people are using a lot of uh, food which are preservative, like, you know, they are preservative. Uh, and even if it is a vegetarian food, they go to supermarket, buy something is ready, and then just warm it in a yes. microwave and have it. Uh, how do you feel that, uh, how good is the fresh cooking, like, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, be, yeah, obviously, because who are we even talking about? At least among, native, you know, Western people, I don't know about immigrants, but among Western people, if you look at, like, like, say, in America, they have this big chain called Whole Foods Markets, or it's a huge, like, natural food supermarket chain. And what you find always is that not only that chain, but any whole, you know, natural foods, you always find them in neighborhoods where you have a higher level of education. So eating all this junk food is, is something more for the shudras, to be honest. And so it's kind of ironic that people who come from the most vegetarian country in the world, a country that was literally, th India, 
thousands of years ahead of other parts of the world ethically, thousands of years ahead. And now for someone to come from that country and not only engage in these evil acts, but even when they eat vegetarian food to, to eat, you know, I hate to say this, I hate to sound, you know, unkind, it's like shudra food. Because again, there's a direct proportion in America between what your educational level is and what kind of food you eat. So for someone with an education who actually is able to read and understand science and to eat junk food to poison your children and poison yourself, it's um, people really need to wake up. Yeah. How do you see like uh, uh, the people who live sattvic life, eat uh, sattvic food, uh, do a bit of excise, uh, as compared to people who probably eat junk food, drink, and then they go to gym to do exercise and you know spend money, kind of thing. So is there a is this you find is a waste or and also the impact on the environment? Um, I think you know as well as I do that. Um, yeah, it's uh, yeah you sort of you know damage yourself in the morning and then try to work it off in the afternoon. So and, and you cannot exercise away the cancer that you're creating by eating meat. It's not going to happen. You know, you can exercise all day and night till the cows come home and you're still going to get cancer, you know, at a much higher rate if you eat this meat and junk food. No, no, you can't, when you poison your body, you can't just exercise. And that's why you see athletes, you know, die at 45 from a heart attack or something. They're professional athletes. So friends, uh, uh, we, were, we are with the, uh, you know, Hedinand uh, Das Goswamiji. Uh, very uh, intense discussion, uh, very uh, informative. Uh, we're going to talk about, uh, he has written two books. Uh, Lately. Lately, A Comprehensive Guide <laughs> to Bhagavad Gita with literal translation. And the second uh, book title looks with, uh, quite interesting, uh, Quest for Justice. It's a slack tales with modern illumination from the Mahabharata. So, uh, Acharya, uh, can you give us a bit idea about this book? Uh, yes. Of Justice, uh, what it is about? Yeah. Uh, here comes the infomercial. Um, infomercial warning. Um, this book, Quest for Justice, I was invited several years ago to give a week of, to give a week-long seminar in Mahabharata at a prominent um, yoga community in the Bahamas. And uh, so this is a transcription of the lectures I gave in, in that seminar. And I, I gave sort of the academic background of how the Mahabharata is seen, and then tried to show how it's relevant, how these are real people. The Pandavas, Krishna, of course, Duryodhan, all these people, these are real people. And uh, in many important ways, they're like us. And so what can we learn from what they did right and what they did wrong? Well, that's it. So friends, uh, we were with Hattinand uh, uh, Das Goswamiji. Uh, we will take a short break. Uh, after that, we will have Guru Vandana, who is a uh, ISKCON uh, uh, temple follower, uh, a big name in Melbourne. She's uh, a great devotee and doing a lot of hard works, getting uh, donations and marketing and you know, getting uh, people comfortable. Uh, she has got some questions from the, your books. I think you have a big, uh, uh, you know, stars have big fan following and you have 
big but spent for uh, following so she's going to be asking you a couple of questions uh, but thank you so much for talking to ptu melbourne and ptu melbourne it's so enlightened and so excited to meet you today uh, thank you so much keep the uh, good work uh, going on thank you very much it was a pleasure thank you for coming out so uh, we'll end this little thing here and then we'll be back on the air in just a few minutes probably. Yeah.